Conversations. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Med Conversations. Today we're going to do fluid balance, and this was recommended by Dana, so thanks to her, because it's a really good topic. I think it's something which we all have to do almost every day. It's something which can really help or harm a patient if you mess up their fluid balance and fluids and things. So hopefully there's something useful in here. Thanks, Scott. Um, so I'm Beck, and I'm going to be taught by Scott as we go through this arcane art. I think it's pretty funny that fluid um, fluid assessments are often done by the most junior doctors, but they're one of the most difficult examinations there are. So, Scott, how are you structuring this episode? So I thought we'd first um, – it'd be a bit of a limited app, a bit more practical than some of the other ones, kind of directed at junior doctors, but hopefully there's something for everyone. So first we're going to start off with a bit of theory about hypo and hypervolemia. Then we're going to give you our med conversations. Uh, patented. Sp- patented but probably non-official, might make some older consultants angry approach to how on a cover shift or if you're doing a fluid assessment, you might approach assessing someone's fluid status. Then we're going to run through a few cases. Sounds good. Cool. So hang on. (laughs) Everyone's favorite noise. So you... So just to get you in the mood of the fluid review, we're going to talk about a common case. So... You are the night, the evening resident, and you've been asked to reassess Gloria Gladness's fluid status at 7 p.m. She's a 78-year-old lady who was admitted today after a fall at home with prolonged lie outside her fancy Turak home. So we're going to give you an approach to this case. How, what kind of things do you look at and what kind of order do you go through them? And then how do you direct what you do in terms of things like giving fluids and diuretics and things like that? So... Our basic order is going to be different to what you might normally hear in terms of, you know, like a history exam investigations, because we're going to structure it like you're actually on the wards. First, you've got access, you know, to the handover from the nurse and you've got access to the notes. Then you go and see the patient and you come up with your plan. So, That's Beck, what's our, um, what's our kind of order? Yeah, so first of all, you do a chart review um, and that's reviewing what the patient's past history is, what medications they're on, what are their current major issues during this admission. Then you can have a look at their recent investigations, what are their blood tests showing, fluid balance charts and weights. Then you take a history, do an examination, and then before you make a plan for what you're going to actually do, make a plan for what your goal is. What's the the aim of the intervention that you're going to propose? Yeah, because that's really important because you just don't want to give fluids if you don't need them. So just to revise those things again, which we'll go through a lot of times this episode. First, chart review, looking at past history, medications, current issues, then investigations, then your fluid balance chart and your weights, history, then exam, and then your goal. Great. Well, let's just dive into it. Scott, can you give us a bit of the background, a bit of the lingo? Yeah, so just to go through some words pretty quickly and some of the science. So at the end of your assessment, you want to decide whether you think someone's hypervolemic, so increased extracellular fluid hypovolemic, so decreased fluid, or euvolemic, so about appropriate fluid. And um, this is pretty much always a guess. Sometimes it's pretty obvious if someone's really overloaded or really dry, but a lot of the time they're somewhere in the middle and it's pretty difficult to make that assessment. Or they might even be, you know, intravascularly deplete in their um, uh, blood system, but with lots of kind of interstitial edema in their legs, so it can be hard. Yeah, I think humility is the key here. Mm. And even like ICU consultants, it seems to be one of their favourite topics, always arguing about kind of fluid status and fluid balance. And even for those really experienced clinicians, it can be pretty difficult. So I now, now that everyone's really excited that we're going to teach them <laughs> how to do this, given what I've just said, no, it, it really is 
really is something that, that I think you can learn to do very effectively, but just not very precisely. You can class people into the clearly hypervolemic, clearly hypovolemic, and then, yes, there's a lot of grey areas in the middle, but what we'll be going through today is how to decide where on the spectrum you think somebody probably kind of sort of is. Yeah, and how to rule out red flags. That means someone's way too far in either direction. So a list of terms that people often get confused are um, total body water. So you might have heard 70% in your morning factoid in high school like I did, but it's usually 50 to 60% in adults based on... What do you mean by that? Like weight, is it? Uh, Yeah, so of your weight, so if you're 70 kilos, the amount of um, litres of water that you have is about 50 to 60% in your body. And that water is spread throughout the intracellular fluid, so all the fluid inside your cells and the extracellular fluid. So the intracellular, so the extracellular fluid, uh, so extracellular fluid is about forty um, percent uh, of all your water, and about sixty percent is your intracellular fluid inside your cells. Your extracellular fluid is all your interstitial fluid around your body, and also your blood plasma. Um, and just a trick here to, that can confuse people is that um, remember you've also got some intracellular fluid inside your blood as well inside your hemoglo- inside your red blood cells. But um, basically you've got kind of six or seven litres of blood and about half of that is your plasma fluid. Um, but this will obviously vary depending on the situation and this is not super relevant for this podcast but just some good sciencey backgrounds. I think, and I think the key thing to understand is there are different fluid compartments. We would have learned that in med school. Um, but what we're talking about here when we say hypovolemia, hypervolemia is the extracellular fluid volume yep. so hypovolemia is the loss of extracellular volume hypovolemic shock is intravascular depletion with perfusion loss as well and this is one that i think a lot of people including myself often get wrong we use hypovolemia and dehydration interchangeably but um apparently that's that's not quite right so what what precisely does dehydration mean so technically dehydration means just loss of water without loss of sodium so you should, you, you should get a hypernatremia, and you can – I actually know our app was on hyponatremia, wasn't it? It's not going to be super <laughs> helpful. But um, as opposed to hypovolemia, which is loss of um, – which just means loss of water more generally, which can also be including loss of sodium. And so obviously often those states will overlap, mm. and shock can also overlap as well. Yeah. So euvolemia is obviously normal. Hypervolemia is – also referred to colloquially as fluid overload, and that's your increased extracellular fluid volume from heart failure or liver failure, CKD, or often what you see on the wards is iatrogenic when the overly excitable intern has uh, charted too much fluid, or consultant or registrar. Yeah, they're all Everyone's everyone can be guilty. Um, so just quickly going through hypovolemia, so the signs of how it can happen. So you can either have gastrointestinal losses, so you know, increased vomiting, diarrhea, bleeding, external drainage through all those mucky surgical tubes. Um, you can have renal losses. That can be because you're giving someone too many diuretics. They've got an osmotic diuresis from being um, hyperglycemic or salt-wasting nephropathies. You might have losses through their skin. You've always got a little bit of insensible losses through your skin, but you can also get increased losses if you're really febrile and sweating or if you've got extensive burns. Or you might have third space sequestration of your um, volume. So that you might see that if you've got an intestinal obstruction or kind of complicated traumatic injuries. Yeah. So I think to summarise there, like any other deficiency of everything else, a deficiency of water, a deficiency of volume is from increased loss, 
reduced intake or sequestration. So with reduced intake, what you're going to see most of is patients who are nil by mouth, they've um, had a fall with a long line, haven't had any water for 24 hours, they're on a fluid restriction, they're really nauseous, they're not drinking. Increased loss, again, iatrogenic causes overdiuresis, surgery, or patient factors. So this is just fluid coming out of any orifice, so diarrhea, vomiting, burns, and um, burns and fever where you're getting increased losses through the skin, through sweating or, or directly through the um, through the burns. Bleeding, osmotic diuresis in hyperglycemia is a big one that I see all the time. So that's hypovolemia. Um, Scott, hypervolemia, what's the, what's the deal? I think the really easy way to remember the main causes of hypervolemia are the three failures. So heart failure, kidney failure and liver failure. And then the next most common cause would be iatrogenic. So usually when you've given someone way too many intravenous fluids. If someone's got healthy kidneys, you or me, we can they can usually excrete at least 20 litres of water a day if you drink way too much. But in our kind of crumbly old hospital patients, they might be a lot lower. Yeah, so um, this, is, this is where there's often an issue with the bottomless bag of salty saline. So that sort of phenomenon on the wards of someone being on being on fluids and then the HMO coming along and when the fluids run out, charting it again and then charting it again. And without doing a fluid review in between, once you've committed someone to the single bag of normal saline, it seems to just be this self-perpetuating thing that keeps on going on and on and on. So hopefully if you get nothing else out of this podcast, it's that fluids are a drug and you shouldn't just blindly keep re-prescribing them because that can lead to hyperlemia as well. Yeah, many patients are being harmed by the bottomless bag of salty saline. All right. So now we're going to start talking through our approach. So the first thing is your chart review. You've just been paged and now um, you are thinking about what information you can get from the chart before you go and see the patient. So this is going to be a directed fluid review. We're not trying to sort out, you know, kind of uh, localize all their MS lesions and sort out their social situation and discharge plans. So we're going to be pretty brief today. But looking at their past history, what things are you looking for, Beck? So those failures you were talking about, heart failure, kidney failure, liver failure. Yep. Um, so, and you'd also look for diabetes um, and any rarer hormonal causes of um, fluid imbalances such as SIADH or thyroid disorders. Um, and medications, what's the most important? Yeah, so I think that the obvious one here is perizomide, and that's one that people don't tend to forget about. But think about other diuretics as well, so thiazides, and then more weekly diuretic medications like SGLT2 inhibitors, which are diabetes medications and also act as a weak diuretic. Empagliflozin. Empagliflozin, dapagliflozin, all the flozins. Um, How do you pronounce it? I think I've been saying it wrong. Empagliflozin. Look, look, I say say empagliflozin. Most Most people in my unit say empagliflozin, but you go to conferences and everyone says different things, so... Who knows? Pick a pronunciation and wrong with it, I think. No, in Pagley Flozen, no Australian <laughs> drawl. All right. Uh, so ACE inhibitors is another one which can have a weekly diuretic effect. Yeah. And when you're looking at the medication chart, you also want to clarify how many fluids, how many bags of fluid they've had. And also if yeah. they've had fluids in kind of solutions or suspensions, like your classic one is kind of tazacin or vancomycin, which not only has a lot of fluid, but tazacin also has a lot of salt in the bag. Yeah, really important one to look for. Okay, so that's the the first thing. So we've done the chart review looking at the past history and the meds. What about the fluid balance chart? 
So the fluid balance chart, if it's filled in well, is super helpful and probably the thing that kind of changes the most. So you can look at it just over the last couple of hours and get a really good idea of um, how the patient's fluid balance is going. But often there's, you know, it's quite hard to document and often there's gaps and it, it can be hard to interpret how good the information you're getting is. So um, looking at the fluid balance chart, you're looking at all the um, uh, fluid inputs for the patient and all the fluid outputs. So if someone's got normal fluid input and output, um, it's about kind of two liters turned over a day, which varies based on a lot of different factors and it can be a bit complicated. But the main inputs you're thinking about are um, uh, obviously fluid that people drink, fl fluid that people get through their food, and there's actually also about 300 mil um, produced um, by metabolic processes, cellular respiration in the body of fluid mm. every day. They're all your inputs. And then your outputs are going to be um, two things. They're going to be your insensible losses, which you don't measure, which includes things like um, evaporation through your lungs and skin. About two-thirds is normally through your skin and about a third through your lungs. And this is crazy how much there is here. I thought mm. that it was minimal, but it's 600 to 900 mils. Yeah, so even if you weren't losing, weren't producing any urine, you'd still be losing about 600 to 900 mil through your um, skin and through your lungs. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously also any other fluid coming out of you. So obviously urine being the really major one, but also um, feces, if you've got any surgical tubes in, if you're um, vomiting or, you know, losing fluids, any other creative way that surgeons have tried to suck things out of you. Yeah, and so the other the other part of a fluid balance chart is um, is patient weight. So some patients get weighed every day, and sometimes on a different set of scales every single day, wearing different items of clothing. Mm. Um, it can be fairly um, useless. It can also be really useful, mm. and it's best over a, over a longer term. So if you can have a look and see that this patient three weeks ago was admitted with a weight of eighty kilos, and now they're 90 kilos, it's a pretty fair call that they haven't put on 10 kilos of custard with their dessert uh, and they've probably put on a lot of extra fluid. Yeah, weights, good. a good set of weights is the best. Like I would much rather have like daily weights, accurate daily weights on a patient than bloods, I think, for most kind of gen med wow. inpatients that just have some heart failure or something. Mm. It gives you so much information because it can be quite hard to clinically examine a patient, but if, you know, if their weight's gone up by 10 kilos and you think it's accurate, yeah. Probably put on some fluid. Yeah. I think I think the most important thing here is that all this stuff is really useful information, but you have to view it like the rest of life with a critical, sceptical eye. Yeah. So next, Beck, looking at bloods. What, what, what kind of things to assess fluid balance? What clues could you get from someone's bloods as to whether they're hyper or hypovolemic? Yeah, so I think bloods are actually really, really useful here, and it's not something that I learned in med school, so I'm happy to emphasize this here. So first, um, so looking at the basic bloods, so I look at the, the FBE, um, I'd expect that in hypovolemia, the blood might be more concentrated. So the hemoglobin might be increased, and the hematocrit as well could be increased. Um, and conversely, in hypervolemia, those things might be lower because the blood is more diluted. Uh, I look at the UEC, the uh, sodium is the first thing on the UEC. So in a patient who's hypovolemic, usually um, the sodium will be, sorry, if they're dehydrated, so that is a loss of water without salt, you'd expect the sodium to be increased. And that can be increased quite a lot. Sodium can also go down in hypovolemia. Um, so basically hypernatremia is useful because you think that that's a patient who's undervolumed till proven otherwise. 
till proven otherwise. But if the sodium is decreased, it could be either. Yeah. There's a useful podcast about this uh, from a few weeks ago. Yeah. Hi, uh, hyponatremia. Um, have we talked about urea yet? We haven't. No. So urea, urea is also really useful. Urea goes up in hypovolemia. And I think it's the, the thing here is to look at it being decoupled from the creatinine. So if the urea is elevated out of proportion to the creatinine, mm. um, then that's, that's a, a hint that this patient could be undervolumed. Yeah, so um, remember that um, uh, someone with a, a higher creatinine, so worse renal function, will tend to have a higher urea. Um, but if someone's creatinine is remaining stable then um, and their urea goes up, that's sometimes a useful sign that they might be um, suffering from dehydration. And you can they, they talk about some ratios of 10 or 20 to 1 um, between the urea and the creatinine ratio, but I think using the units that often pop up in our hospital systems, you can't. You'd have to change some of the units first, so it's not super useful. But if you just look and the urea has gone up a long way, then definitely dehydration is one of the things you think about. Yeah, and um, the last one is lactate. So lactate you get from a VBG, which a lot of patients get on arrival to ED. So an elevated lactate can be a sign of it, it is a sign of decreased tissue perfusion, which can occur in hypovolemia. But of course, also shock for other causes and ischemia. Yeah. Um, but that's a, a really useful one. So in summary, there, elevated. So for um, undervolumed patients, you're looking for elevated hemoglobin and hematocrit. You're looking for elevated urea out of proportion to the creatinine. The sodium could go up or down, and the lactate could go up. With the opposite in patients who are overloaded. So next we're going to talk about the history. So we mean actually going to the patient, actually asking them a couple of questions. Now, it's probably not going to be a really long history. You don't want to get chatting about their cat too much unless you really feel like it. But there's a couple of really important questions. And to be honest, if you've got really good documentation on the charts, a lot of this stuff is also just about kind of confirming the information you've already had and using some real common sense. The charts say they've had two bags of saline and they're still getting some. Is the bag of saline sitting next to them? But you should ask the patient about um, fluid intake and loss. So you're asking them, you know, are they drinking and eating okay today? Do they have a lot of diarrhea? Do they have nausea? Um, and a really key question, probably one of the most useful things in this podcast, do they feel thirsty? Yeah. So I actually just ask patients, do you feel like you're dry or do you feel like you're overloaded? And a lot of patients who have had volume um, overload before will know, will know those terms and know what that means and they can just tell you and then the rest of it is just confirming so the mm. patient can tell you the answer and some of the other things you ask for would only be kind of uh, come into play if someone's fluid status is really out of whack but you can ask them about things like presyncope and dizziness and you can also ask them about symptoms of things like uh, uh, left heart failure with you know acute pulmonary edema so ask them about shortness of breath or right heart failure with increased swelling in their legs yeah and then um, so, Scott, you raised a good point when we were talking about this earlier that a lot of the time we can go in and poke the patient's legs and think that they they look sort of the same as before, but patients are pretty aware of that. So if you ask them if they think their legs are more swollen than usual, they'll be able to tell you. So now moving on to examination. The first thing is you want to look at the OBS, and um, you can look for signs like of hypervolemia, so fluid overload for um, tachypnea, tachycardia. They might have hypoxia. They're really um, in pulmonary edema. And you can also look for signs of hypovolemia. Now, you you know, uh, everyone's always looking for um, hypotension, but it's actually quite a late sign. You need to be quite 
hypovolemic before you get a hypotension. But things like a, um, a postural hypotension is a bit more sensitive. And you can also get a postural tachycardia before you get a kind of resting tachycardia from your um, volume depletion. Mm, yeah, Scott, I think that's a really good point. And that's something you can't get from the, the nurse's chart. So worth mm. checking yourself. The other things are skin turgor or elasticity, which is less sensitive in the very young or very obese patient. Uh, dry mucous membranes. Oh, so, sorry, with, with tissue turgor, you expect decreased tissue turgor in uh, patients who are undervolumed and dry mucous membranes if they're undervolumed, but beware the mouth breather who might have dry mucous membranes but actually be overloaded. Yeah. So, and you can look for signs of left or right heart failure. So, um, left heart failure, pulmonary edema, um, you might see find things like crepitations in the lung fields, you might find dullness at the bases or reduced breath sounds in the lung fields, or signs of right heart failure. So um, things like a raised JVP or um, peripheral edema, ascites occasionally, mm. um, hepatic pulsation. Um, and don't maybe don't mention this uh, if you're about to sit physician exams, but if you find JVPs really hard, sometimes you can also look at the external jugular vein which is the one that's really obvious when you're sitting there. Well, that one does have valves in it, and it's um, not well-liked, but some studies have shown some correlation. Just maybe keep that off the record. But um, we can probably talk more about <laughs> uh, JV. I think JVP assessment is probably like an ep in itself, and then about 10 years of like failing to get any better at it before you slowly can identify it 40% of the time. Is that, yeah. is that fair? Yeah, that's pretty fair. <laughs> And um, so, so other things, um, these are very much late signs, but signs of shock, so cold peripheries or altered mental state, lethargy, confusion, signs of um, dehydration or, or volume loss. Yeah, and the next thing on examination is looking at the urine. So you're looking at both the output and the colour, and this is kind of helpful if you're not sure how well the fluid balance chart is filled out. And this is a really good sign because if they're... Um, uh, if their fluid output is really low and they're not on diuretics, then that kind of pushes you more towards them being hypovolemic than hypervolemic. Yeah, and um, I think that, that's really useful. So well, you were saying that some of these signs come much later. What are the sort of cutoffs, cutoffs that you've got? Yeah, so um, usually uh, I think with early... It, the great thing about urine output is it's one of the early signs. So even with mild dehydration of under 4% total um, body water loss, so just a couple of litres, you can get some decreased urine output as your body self-regulates your total body water. Um, but the later signs like um, uh, an increased pulse might only come with severe dehydration uh, over, over 9% loss of body water. And um, lowered blood pressure also can usually only comes with that severe um, loss of body water, although when you've got moderate dehydration of between kind of 5 and 9%, sometimes you can get a postural um, hypotension, although a lot of elderly people just have postural hypotension for other reasons as well. So it's not a very specific sign. Any other clinical signs that you might see, Beck? Uh, look, lethargy, I sort of mentioned, sunken eyes uh, is a really late sign. Um, in infants, they can have like crocodile tears, so they're crying without tears because they're so dehydrated, or their fontanelles might be sunken. Mm. I don't really know anything about babies, though, so I'm not going to prefer to talk anything <laughs> more about that. They're very much an adult doctor. Yeah. All right, so we have talked about 
the four of the five steps that we um, told you we were going to to do with the approach to fluid assessing a patient. And now we're up to I think there was six, intervention. Actually. Five of the six. <laughs> 19 of the 20. Yeah. In any case, we're almost there. We're almost stretched. And the last thing we're talking about is intervention. So we're not going to go into much about exactly what to do, um, but more just what your, what your aim is. So you need to think about what you're trying to achieve in this patient. Do you want to replace a fluid deficit? Do you want to give them maintenance because they're nil by mouth or they're not able to take much in? Are you prehydrating them because they're about to have a contrast load from a CT scan? And um, so the the specific types of fluid and the specific rates we'll talk about in another podcast episode another day. Um, but I think it's just really important to have a conscious think about what your goals are. Check the documentation. Use your initiative about what you need, what information you need to find out, um, and also. Uh, acknowledge that once you have provided some kind of a treatment to redress any issues in the fluid balance, you can just assess the patient's response to therapy. So they have a met call for hypotension and you give them a litre of fluids, check if it, it's helped. Mm. And time is one of the best allies of doctors. Sometimes yeah. just assessing response over time is much better than making this amazing detailed assessment at one point in time. And just to kind of mention, but not really go into, because I don't understand it very well either. Um, you, know, you might hear about, um, particularly ICU regs, talking about all these invasive measures of um, fluid status, like central venous pressures and things. Um, that is a bit controversial, so I'm not really going to go into it. But just the important things to know are sometimes fluid status can be estimated by things like some central venous catheters and arterial um, lines and using some other measurements. But that's a big area. Now, after all that, if your brain's overheating a bit, it's time for a little music break. steeped in our brain juices uh, just to revise the structure again so when you see a patient for a fluid review you need to review their chart looking at their past history medications and their current major issues check their investigations look at the fluid balance chart and their recent weights take a history examine the patient and work out what your goal is of intervention so now that we've gone through all that let's go back to case one so it's the evening, you're doing your fluid handover. You've been asked to assess Gloria Gladness's fluid status. She's a 78-year-old lady who was admitted today after a fall at home um, after tripping over her corgi outside her fancy Turak home. She had a prolonged lie, although she was fortunately unharmed, along with her um, corgi, whose yelps eventually alerted her neighbour to her distress. On admission, she was found to have acute on chronic kidney injury with a very small CK rise and a borderline BP and tachycardia. She was admitted and started on fluid rehydration. So, Beck, using the structure we've talked about, how would you approach this? Yeah, so the first step is doing a chart review. So um, what, what's, the, what's the past history listed for Gloria? Yep, so she's got heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, on usually on fruzamide, 20 milligrams daily. She's got chronic kidney disease with a GFR of 40. She's also got type 2 diabetes on metformin. Okay. Um, and her current major issues would be the other thing I'd look at, but you've sort of already listed that. So she's got an acute on-chronic kidney failure and a borderline blood pressure. She's already had some fluids. 
Um, so next I'm going to look at her investigations. And this is the test that she had when she first presented. Yeah, so there's been no repeat tests, but on admission she had um, uh, hemoglobin of 160 with a hematocrit of 50%. She's got a creatinine of 150 with her baseline creatinine of 110. Um, she's got a urea of 15 and a sodium of 154. They're all pretty high and suggestive of mm. hypovolemia. Okay, but now I want to find out what's happened since then. So what's her fluid balance chart showing and do we have a weight? So um, the, she's had one litre of normal saline given over four hours. Um, there's one weight today, which is 65 kilograms, which doesn't help you very much. She's not sure what she used to weigh. And her urine output over the last couple of hours has been about 30 mil per hour via her IDC. Okay. Um, so now I'd go to history. So I'd be asking her how she's feeling in general, particularly whether she's feeling thirsty. Yep. So Gloria says she's feeling very thirsty and she wonders if she could chart her some champagne on her drug chart. So you do that and then you examine the patient. Yeah. So um, her heart rate's 100, her blood pressure's 110 over 60. Um she, her J, and there's no signs of heart failure with a normal JVP, only very minimal pedal edema and a clear chest for auscultation. So mm -hmm. what do you think about now? Okay, so now I have to think about whether I think she's hypo or hypervolemic or uvolemic. And I think it sounds like on balance she's still fairly hypovolemic, fairly dehydrated. And um, so I would be wanting to prescribe her some more some more fluids, whether that be oral or intravenous. I think in this case probably would require some further intravenous fluids. Yeah, so pick a pick a pick a rate, Dr. Fosk. Yeah, so so I'd probably put her on normal saline um, at a, an eight or ten hourly rate, but I would write a note on the um, prescription that she can't have any more fluids after that without being fluid reviewed by the overnight HMO. Who is me? So I'd be just setting myself up for another job. I think that is really important, though, and it's something that I do do when I prescribe fluids. I write on it specifically, not for further after this, unless mm. reviewed. You don't want them getting that bottomless bag we talked about. And um, just to clarify, I think part of Beck's thinking as to why she was really careful with her fluid administration is that this patient has heart failure. So it would be really easy to give her too much and to put her into fluid overload. Okay, that's case one. We have another cool. case? We do. Um, so the next case is Georgia. She's a 38-year-old lady with ulcerative colitis, currently day two post-colectomy for toxic megacolon. And you, Scott, are the perioperative med reg, asked to review her and manage her fluid status. Or maybe I'm the I don't know. I don't know who anyone <laughs> I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll be periop. So I'm not going to try and sort out all her issues that are um, going on this time. We're just going to focus in on her fluid status. But the first thing I'm going to look at, so Beck, does she have any past medical history? Yeah, so as I said, she's got ulcerative colitis, usually takes sulfasalazine, and doesn't have any other comorbidities. Yep. Her procedure was uncomplicated. Yeah. Um, does she have any drains in at all? Yeah, so she's got two drains in situ and a stoma. Yep. And um, does she, uh, what's my question? Is she eating or drinking yet? So she's just on clear fluids at the moment. Um, she's she's had quite a lot of nausea and pain, so she's on a lot of opiates. Great. And I'll clarify these when I speak to the patient in person. But So I'm checking through the investigations, and what are they? Hemoglobin is 130, hematocrit is 0.45, creatinine is 70, urea is 4. So everything there is pretty normal. Mm. And, um, Beck, is there a fluid balance chart I can look at? 
There most certainly is. It's protocol on this ward and uh, it has not been filled out at all since uh, 2 a.m. this morning. Okay, so not that useful information there. And do we have any serial waits over her admission? No, no, we don't. Okay. Um, so I go and see Georgia and I ask her if she feels thirsty. Yeah, so she she's not particularly thirsty, but she tells you that she's been trying to drink because she knows she's supposed to, but she just feels really nauseous, so she's vomiting out most of the stuff she's trying to get down. Okay, and then I go to examine her. So what do I find? Yeah, so um, her jugular venous pressure, you can see, it just looks like at the base of the neck. Um, she doesn't have any peripheral edema. Her vital signs are all normal, and overall you think that she looks fairly euvolemic. You also notice that there's a bag of uh, normal saline hanging by the side of the bed, currently running at a 10-hourly rate. Okay. And does she have an IDC in? Is there any concentrated urine next to her bed? She does have an IDC in, um, and the urine is straw-coloured. That's okay, so pretty normal. All right, and the drainage from her surgery tubes doesn't look too no, voluminous. There hasn't been any any drainage um, from the, from the um, drain tubes since two hours postoperatively, her stoma is active minimally and her urine output is about 40 mils an hour. Okay, so to synthesize that, it sounds like this is um, a girl with kind of reduced oral um, fluid intake postoperatively for multiple reasons and that we need to replace. And it sounds like she's been having some fluids and is still sitting pretty euvolemic. Given that she's got ongoing nausea and difficulty drinking, I think she probably needs ongoing slow fluids. So I'd probably um, consider continuing her on maybe a 10 or 12 hourly bag in this case. What do you reckon, Beck? Yeah. Pretty reasonable? That sounds pretty reasonable. All right. So let's take a little break from cases. Did you have any other random kind of things or facts or I suggestions for, for us, Beck, as a the budding endo-reg? Um, so nothing as a budding endo-reg or even a current endo-reg. <laughs> Um, but but um, in my reading, I have come across a, I don't know if you've seen those BMJ Christmas edition journals that come out, they're very silly, lighthearted thing. Um, so there was a parched, the parched study um, a couple of years ago, the prospective analysis of renal compensation for hypohydration in exhausted doctors. Um, so this was uh, just a bit of fun, but um, I thought you know, worth mentioning, a case control study over 118 case days in the ICU where basically they looked at doctors and the patients that they clerked and compared the urine output of the doctors with the urine output of their patients. And they found that in most of the cases, the doctors were more dehydrated than their patients. Mm. So I think the conclusion was drink more water and roster more staff on. And, yeah, and maybe also... The other thing to take away would be that kidneys are usually pretty good for um, compensating for kind of small fluctuations in fluid balance. And when you get a page at four in the morning because the patient's urine output has been at 40 mil per hour for only the last two hours, that might not be something that needs intravenous fluids straight away. Yeah, there's actually a really great line in this paper. It says, oligoanuria is usually acute renal success rather than failure. So reduce urine output, kidneys are doing their job. Yeah. Yeah. And just... Just while we're here, um, a couple of um, random notes for mention traps for young players when you're looking at assessing someone's fluid status. I think the key ones to keep in mind are when you look at the JVP and it looks like it's up to the ear, think about tricuspid regurgitation. It's not always volume overload. When you see a patient who's grossly edematous, think about hypoalbuminemia. It's not always volume overload in general it's in terms of the total fluid volume. 
when you hear bibasal crepitation, think about atelectasis and not always just pulmonary edema. Mm, or even bronchiectasis, the cha- bronchiectasis. So changes that don't, that don't go away despite diuresis. Yeah. Mm. And if you see somebody with dry mucous membranes, which is a pretty crappy sign anyway, um, think about if they're just mouth breathing, which can dry out their mouth anyway. So Yeah, just be careful. A lot of these signs aren't specific. So let's do another case. So who's going to do this one? Uh, I can introduce it. So you're the Gen Med intern and Nikolai is a 91-year-old man from a nursing home who was admitted yesterday with fever and increased agitation. Mm-hmm. So you're going to start off doing a chart review. Yeah. Uh, what's his past medical history? So um, Nikolai has heart failure with reduced ejection fraction on regular fruzamide 40 milligrams BD. He's also got chronic kidney disease and um, moderate to severe dementia. Um, looking, Having a look through his chart, you see that he's had three litres of intravenous therapy in the 20 hours he's been in hospital. Okay, and then I'm going to look at his investigations next. So what's his haemoglobin? So his haemoglobin is 119, um, which is normal range. Hematocrit's 0.4, so pretty normal. Um, Sodium is 135. Um, Creatinine's 180, which is near his baseline, and urea is 8, which is fairly normal range. Okay, and um, fluid balance chart, do we have one? Uh, fluid balance chart, there's kind of, the litres of fluid are on there, but it just says um, he's had a few urinations. They're not quantified. Um, P-U-I-B. P-U-I-B, yeah. Past urine in bottle. Yep. And he hasn't been weighed. So now you go on to the history, which is somewhat challenging. Yeah. So he asks, he says that he's very happy that the submarine mission's been successful but he's concerned that you've kidnapped him and he'd like to use his legal right to get a lawyer. So not, not a super helpful history, unfortunately, due to the dementia. So apart from the GCS 14 that's pretty evident, uh, what do you find on examination? So his JVP is six centimetres above the sternal angle. Um, he's got bibasal crepitations and reduced breast sounds. He's also got um, peripheral edema. All right, so it sounds like he's now hypervolemic, which is predominantly iatrogenic from those three litres of fluids. What's your goal of intervention? Restore euvolemia. Get rid of the extra fluid. So what are you going to give him back? Uh, I would give him some frizomide. Would you give it IV or oral? Look, I don't think it matters too much in this situation. He's not particularly overloaded. Um, I could be convinced either way. I would probably give it IV, mm. um, just 20 milligrams IV. And sometimes it's better to give a smaller amount IV because it's better to titrate in someone with signs of right heart failure because they might have reduced um, intestinal absorption of the frizomide. Mm. All right, last case. (laughs) (laughs) You can be the nurse. All right, so that page says, two south, bed 14, nor said I bag finished. Please prescribe another. So do you just prescribe? Well, I always think that ideally you need to do a, a fluid assessment first. And in the most ideal world, you'll do a full fluid assessment. Um, but sometimes you can do an abbreviated one. I think it's really important, though, that you remember that fluids are a drug and they can save or kill patients. Yeah. So, so yes, I'm going to do an assessment. I'm going to at least call the nurse back. And, it, and at least go through most of these red flags we're talking about. So first, I'm going to do my chart review. Um, what's the past history for this patient, Beck? So this is a 55-year-old man who you see in the file has decompensated liver cirrhosis. So you're already glad you didn't just chart it. Um, secondary to 
uh, alcohol and he was prescribed 500 mils of CSL during a MET call for a systolic blood pressure of 90 earlier today. Okay. And what does his investigation show? Hemoglobin's at 100. Sodium is low as well at 128. Creatinine and urea are both normal, 80 and 5 respectively. Yeah, so pretty non-specific findings in the setting of chronic liver disease. You'd expect potentially a low hemoglobin and sodium. Uh, and what do does his fluid balance chart show and weight? Yeah, so he's been in hospital for a couple of weeks. His weight looks like it's been stable since he was admitted, but the last weight was two days ago. And his fluid balance chart demonstrates that um, aside from that 500 mil bolus IV, he hasn't had anything else, any other input IV, but he's been drinking normally and it's incomplete. You can't work out a, a net amount in or out, but he seems to be making about 40 mils of urine an hour. Okay, so I go and see him and does he feel thirsty and how does he feel generally? Yeah, so generally he's feeling really awful. He's not thirsty, but he's complaining that his abdomen is more swollen than before. So you're pretty worried about his ascites. Right, what are his obs? Heart rate 70, blood pressure is low at 98 on 60, but you have a look through the rest of the chart and you realise that's pretty much his baseline. Respiratory rate rate is 18 and his oxygen saturations are 97% on room air. He does indeed have ascites on examination and some mild pitting pedal edema. Okay, so some signs of liver decompensation, but no specific signs of pulmonary edema. So going through all that, there's a lot of kind of non-specific signs there in terms of the investigations. Um, the really key learning point here is not only that, um, well, specifically people with um, liver failure, it's quite dangerous to give them a lot of extra fluids, and it's also particularly dangerous to give them a lot of salt. Um, I mean, it, it may have been appropriate at the time if he had a, a met call for lower blood pressure, um, but remember that a lot of um, decompensated cirrhotics might sit with a, um, uh, an SBP of around 90 to 100 some of the time, so you do have to be really careful with over um, uh, giving them fluids. And generally, the fluid of choice is albumin, but that's a that's a story for another day. So, mm. what do we do? What do we do with this guy? So we want to undo the fluid overload that we've given him um, in a very slow, careful way. I think in this case it's a bit hard where his blood pressure is a bit low, but then he's got the liver disease, he's already had 500 ml of fluids. So at this stage I'd probably just cease fluids, make sure that the, there's a, a good handover, that he requires a salt restriction and daily weights, and kind of see how he goes overnight before I re we got really aggressive and started giving him more fluids or giving him any active diuresis, but probably depends a bit on the situation. Sounds good. All right, I think that brings us to the end. So uh, that's that's our four cases, and I think we've gone through a, a standardised approach for all of them. So remind me what that was again. So last time, so um, first chart review, looking at past history, medications, the current major issues, then investigations, looking particularly for raised urea, um, raised hematocrit, um, and hypernatremia. Um, looking at the fluid balance chart, checking the patient's weight over time, taking a history, lo and behold, uh, examining the patient and thinking about what your goal is for intervention, um, whether you want to maintain uvolemia or redress any imbalance. Yeah, do they really need maintenance fluids or could they probably just eat and drink and see how things go? So I think that the take-home points apart from that are do fluid assess your patients. Fluids are a drug and um, it's, it's something that's important to take seriously. Um, take a history, ask them if they think they're overloaded or underloaded um, and go and have a glass of water because you're probably dry too. <laughs>
that's pretty much it for the episode. Um, thanks to everyone who's donated on Patreon. We're going to try and keep improving things and improving the equipment and things. Um, thanks to everyone who's liked us on Facebook and hopefully maybe we'll get some love letters in the future. We'd really appreciate that. Thanks waiting out, just pining by a window in a tower. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye.